Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 256, Scandinavian Settlement in England. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. Right now, members are listening to an episode about London's sex trade in the Roman era. Here's a sample. Sex is a critical part of human history, yet it's often ignored. It's treated as something tawdry that shouldn't be discussed. And as for sex workers, you really have to do some digging to find anyone willing to talk about that part of history, in spite of it being known as the world's oldest profession. It's a degraded and ignored corner of history, but it is still history, and it deserves its place alongside everything else. In fact, I would bet you just about anything that there are at least a handful of sex workers somewhere in your family history. Likely even more. I'd go so far as to say that while mathematically it's likely that you're related to Alfred the Great if you're English, I'd also say that mathematically you probably have more DNA handed down to you from prostitutes than from Alfred. So let's talk about your forgotten family members. Some were glamorous, but most weren't. This is a story of survival for most who lived through it. You can get instant access to that and all the other members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Carrie, Janet, and Patrick for signing up already. Let's give you a forced view of where we've been and where we're going. For the last few episodes, we've been discussing the way life has been changing in Southern Britain. While the dramatic battles and political maneuvering dominated the story for the last season, you're now learning of many of the changes that were happening and how that impacted the people living on the island. And some of these changes were not a direct result of Northmen raiders. Instead, they were part of an overall shift in how the Anglo-Saxons saw their place in the world. It was a cultural shift as much as it was anything else. And central to it were the changing attitudes towards land. And I'm taking the time to bring this story to you, as subtle as it may seem, because I want you to have a decent grasp of what life was really like in this era. We tell history in the form of stories, but history isn't really a drama. These things happen to people who are as real as you and me, so we should know the world that they were living in. But my other reason for taking the time to go over these changes was to give you a structure that'll help you understand what's coming next. For about a hundred years, we've seen increasing numbers of Scandinavians coming to Britain. And once the treaty between Alfred and Guthrum was signed, it was clear that this was no longer a matter of just raiders and war. We were now in an era of Scandinavian settlement. And if I told you this story in the way that it's been told in the past, using the Victorian lens of cultural dominance and the medieval lens of religious war, well, a lot of what comes next wouldn't make a lot of sense. We'll see West Saxons working with the Danes. We'll even see some West Saxons leading the Danes. We'll see a rapid conversion to Christianity taking place among the settling Scandinavians. We're going to see all sorts of behaviors that you don't expect to see in a story about religious and cultural war. And we're almost to that point. But before we move on, we need to understand where these changes are coming from and the set of cultural and economic incentives that were driving them. Because the truth is that the story of the 10th century isn't one of genocide. This story is a good old-fashioned war of rich people fighting over lands and titles. And to explain it, we're drawing from multiple areas of evidence. 
There are some records that have survived and have been translated. There's also the archaeological record. But on top of all of that, there are other more enigmatic types of evidence. And they're found in things like place names and personal names, and even in bits of sculpture. And what the evidence is telling us is that the changes that were happening in Wessex were also happening in the areas of Danelaw. The story of what's happening in the north is one largely of the Danes taking clear advantage of the ever-evolving attitude towards land ownership, and also taking part in political compromise and accommodation. That's what's really happening here. And while simply leaving it at that statement is tantalizingly easy, and it really would free me up to get back to the intrigue and battle of this period, which would be a lot easier to talk about, I think it would ultimately rob you of the opportunity to learn about the sorts of things that take up most of a historian's work. Because the vast bulk of what historians do doesn't really get brought into pop history. But the nice thing about doing a long-form project like this is that we have the time to be able to build in groundwork, and then later reference it when it becomes relevant again. And so, the hope is that this mini-series on land, trade, and politics will give later events the gravity that they deserve. Sort of like how learning about the honor and feasting culture in the early Anglo-Saxon period brought depth to later events like the fight between Chinnawolf and Chinnaherd. So, I want to round out this opening volley for the season by telling you about the cultural context of the Anglo-Scandinavians. And at the same time, I'm going to tell you a bit about how scholars have worked all this stuff out. Because considering how this period is a black hole in many respects, it's pretty incredible how they did this. And, much like with the story of Worcester and Londinium, the driving force behind all of this comes down to economics. And that means land. We already know how land is getting divided up, and we know about the social and economic pressures behind that. But don't forget that the rise of bookland and the subsequent fracturing of multiple estates was occurring before the Northmen first arrived in Britain. And that's critical for understanding what the Danes were walking into. The era of the king owning everything had largely come to an end. And now you had individuals who held land in perpetuity and then could grant, gift, or sell that land should they desire. More than that, though, was the fact that there were ever-increasing numbers of individuals who owned land in this way. Now, the church was mostly doing okay during this period, thanks, no doubt, to the fact that some people chose to bequeath their property to the church as a way to hedge their bets for the afterlife. So not every landlord was experiencing ever-smaller degrees of control and acreage. Some were finding ways to exploit the system. But this is the landscape that the Danes walked into. And it wasn't long before they got into the property game themselves. The Chronicle tells us that in 876, Halfdan, quote, divided the lands of the Northumbrians so that they became afterwards their harrowers and plowers, end quote. Now, this wasn't the first time that the Northumbrians had dealt with the Danes. In fact, it's not even the first time that they lost to the Danes. But this entry in the Chronicle represents a change. The Danes weren't just wintering in York. They weren't establishing puppet rulers. This time, the Danes were settling. The next year, in 877, Guthrum's army, quote, entered Mercia, some of which they divided among them, and some they gave to Chilwolf, end quote. So here we're seeing Guthrum taking lands within Mercia and sharing it out amongst his army. The following year, in 878, 
The Chronicle tells us that another army led by Guthrum drove Alfred into the marshes of Somerset and, quote, rode over the land of the West Saxons, where they settled, and drove many of the people over the sea, end quote. Two years after that, in 880, the Chronicle tells us that Guthrum's army went into East Anglia, quote, where they settled and divided the land, end quote. And after that, we see Guthrum being referred to as king under his new baptismal name, Athelstan. So, in the space of about four years, everything had changed. No longer were the Danes marauding pirates seeking Danegelds. No longer were they only holding territory just long enough to prepare for the next raid. Now, they were neighbors. They held lands in Mercia, East Anglia, Northumbria, and even some lands in Wessex, though they no doubt had to give those back after Alfred defeated Guthrum. But the fact is that even though Guthrum was an invader, and even though he had been defeated, Alfred still allowed him to go into East Anglia, take those lands, and settle there. He'd allowed Guthrum and his army to become landlords. So in the space of about four years, you suddenly have Northumbria, East Anglia, and parts of Mercia that were being openly settled by the Scandinavians. And that got me wondering, how exactly did they go about all this? How was land dealt with? And how did that impact the developing culture of the kingdoms that they had seized? Because what we're talking about here is basically taking what the Anglo-Saxons were already doing with the land, fracturing it up and selling it off and splitting it up, and then putting that system on steroids. This seizure and sharing out of lands by the Danes amounted essentially to large-scale privatization of land. So I wanted to know a little bit more about how that was being carried out. But, as you know, even in the much better documented South, the records for how this sort of thing was happening tend to be pretty sparse. And that leaves us with a problem. How do you see what's happening in the North, where our documents are even worse? Well, a surprisingly big and useful tool in a historian's toolbox is actually looking at place names. The thing is that each era leaves its own mark on the map. As cultures rise and fall, as new populations move in, our maps change in subtle ways, and scholars who specialize in this area of study can read a map much like a geologist can look at strata on a rock sample and then tell you roughly what happened. And this evidence is critical for us because it helps fill out the picture that otherwise would be incredibly dim. Ultimately, the way a place is named, whether it be big or small, can tell you a lot about what was going on there at the time that it was named. It can tell you what sort of industry might have been going on, or who may have owned it, and in this case, it can also tell us what languages may have been predominant. Now, our written sources point us towards settlements in Yorkshire, Mercia, East Anglia, and the Wirral, and all evidence points towards the veracity of those records. However, what place names enable us to do is see beyond those sparse records, and in doing so, we can see a far more diverse pattern of settlement. Now, the people who map these Scandinavian place names tend to look for four main types of names. And the first and most common are the B names. B in Old Norse means village or settlement. It's virtually identical to how the Anglo-Saxons used ton in their villages and towns. Some example of B names would be Darby, Kirby, and Selby. And there are a lot of places named this way. There are actually about 850 B names in England. And the region of Yorkshire and Lincolnshire hold over half of them. Interestingly, a large portion of the B names contain a personal name. 
as in the village is named after someone specific. And in Yorkshire, over 90% of the personal named bee settlements were named after someone with a Scandinavian name. And these settlements were also heavily concentrated in the Vale of York, which is an area just to the north of the city of York, which contained rich farming lands. So this raises the question, could this reflect the sharing out of Northumbrian lands by Halfdan? Quite possibly, and some scholars believe that. But even if it wasn't linked to that specific seizure and sharing out of lands, the proliferation of names that are being attached to settlements and the overwhelming numbers of Scandinavian names that are being attached to those settlements certainly gives a sense of a large-scale fragmentation of land ownership and also transferring of ownership towards Scandinavians that was probably happening in the region. But here's where it gets really interesting. That's just for Yorkshire. When you look at Lincolnshire, the bee settlements are a little different, and they don't have a corresponding written record of conquest. And yet we see almost as many bee names in Lincolnshire as we do in Yorkshire. So what happened there? Well, the hint to the mystery is found in the fact that they're concentrated mostly in the wolds. And Americans right now are probably saying, what the hell's a wold? Well, it's a bit of hilly farmland in Lincolnshire. And in fact, the name wolds comes from the Anglo-Saxon word for forest or wilds. Their word was wales, and then it became the wolds, and it just stuck. Anyway, so there's a bunch of bee names in the wolds. And when archaeologists examine these settlements, they determine that they were farmsteads. So looking at all of this together... Scholars have determined that this second large-scale appearance of bee names was likely the result of Scandinavian migrants sailing up the Humber and settling in the Wolds. Which tells a wildly different story than Halfdan sharing out his lands, right? And this is why supporting scholars who take a multi-directional approach is so important. Because only by looking at all the evidence available were they able to determine that there was likely an unrecorded and apparently large Danish migration into Lincolnshire. And as a result of this, our picture is getting more filled out. Instead of just having the chronicle story about lands being shared out due to conquest, we also now have migrating farmers arriving as well. So that's the first most common type of place name, the bee name. The second common Scandinavian influence place name are settlements ending in Thorpe. Examples of this would be Danthorpe, Bishop Thorpe. There's even a few places that are just called Thorpe. And Thorpe is generally agreed to denote a secondary settlement. These are usually found in outlying lands that were soon brought under the control of a larger settlement. So going back to the old multiple estate model, all the smaller villages would have been Thorpes for the primary central settlement that the Lord held. So think of this sort of as a medieval Danish term for suburb. Now Yorkshire has the most Thorpe names, clocking in at 155 of them. And actually, you're going to see this pattern repeated over and over again. Yorkshire just has the most of pretty much all of them. And you would expect that given the history of the area. And 155 Thorpe names is actually quite substantial. Because Derbyshire, Lincolnshire, Leicestershire, and Nottinghamshire all only have 109 Thorpe names combined. And here's why that really matters. Based on the fact that Thorpe towns tend not to be linked to personal names, unlike B names... Scholars believe that they represent a later settlement, which again would point towards subsequent migrations and expansion, and in this case, migrations and expansions that occurred most commonly in Yorkshire. And again, this doesn't mean conquest. When we talk about Scandinavian settlement, conquest often comes out, 
They march in, take the land, and share it out to their warriors. But that's only one part of the history, and it's actually a pretty small one. You might remember back to the episodes on Hastin and others. Many of the members of these armies stuck around just long enough to get enough loot together to be able to buy plots of land for themselves. I mean, granted, lands acquired through conquest gets a lot of press because that's exciting stuff. And I mean, people are generally more excited about battles than they are about real estate transactions. But while the big marquee moments of land acquisition were things like Halfdan sharing out lands, that's not the only way that lands were acquired. And thanks to the rise of book land, lands were actually available to be purchased. And reflecting this change, we see the appearance of Copeland, which in Old Norse literally means bought land. And this should tell you something. There's even a literal region in the Northwest that's called Copeland. The practice of Danes acquiring and holding Copeland appears to have been increasingly common as time went on. And the appearance of these Thorpe settlements might reflect the new Scandinavian aristocrats purchasing land for their secondary settlements. We might be looking at evidence of expansion that's not military in nature, but real estate in nature. However, something to keep in mind is that while Bookland created mechanisms for purchasing land, that doesn't necessarily mean that purchasing was 100% on the up and up. The Northmen were capable and experienced pirates. And actually, we see evidence of them using, for lack of a better term, protection rackets to buy land from Anglo-Saxons in the 11th century. They were basically extorting them. And my guess is that when that record appears in the 11th century, it wasn't the first time that that happened. But the point is that some of these secondary settlements, these Thorps, might have been purchased rather than conquered. So that's Thorps. The third variety of important place names during the Danish settlement are what are called the Grimston hybrids. These are places that have Scandinavian names with attached Anglo-Saxon suffixes. So what scholars do is they look for obvious Scandinavian names and then look for an Anglo-Saxon suffix like hide or tun. In fact, Grimston is one example. That's how these hybrids got their name. And Grimston translates basically into Odin's village. Other examples of this are Olaf's hide, Saxton, and Wigington. Now, like with the other names, the largest concentration of these names are in Yorkshire, with 55 of them being identified there whereas about only 50 have been identified in Derbyshire, Leicestershire, and Nottinghamshire. Now, the Grimston hybrids tell a really interesting tale that's distinct from the apparent personal acquisition story and agricultural migration story that we find in the B names and the expansion story in the Thorpe names. Grimston settlements are thought to be villages that were once English, but were later acquired by the Scandinavians. From the way that they're being named and where they're located, the Grimston hybrids very well might be the flip side of the bee settlements. While the bee settlements very well might be the result of conquest and sharing out of lands, or in the case of Lincolnshire, fresh settlements of the walls, some scholars argue that the Grimston hybrids might be the result of Anglo-Saxon villages and the new Scandinavian aristocracy working to strike an arrangement through political accommodation or other means. And I think that makes perfect sense. Finding common ground in deliberately blending cultures has been a tactic that we've seen repeatedly employed. Most recently, we saw Kenneth McAlpin and his descendants using it to merge Pictish and Scottish culture and symbols. 
these Grimston hybrids could reflect a similar process taking place in the territories held by the Scandinavians. And stick a pin in that, because these names aren't the only sign that we're going to see of accommodation and blending taking place. So don't think, oh, these academics are making a mountain out of a molehill here. Grimston hybrids are only one part of an overall trend that we're seeing in the record. And I will be discussing those signs of political accommodation as I wrap this mini-series up. But I'm getting ahead of myself, and we still need to talk about the fourth and final type of name that scholars look for. And those are places where you have an Anglo-Saxon place name that has been shifted towards Scandinavian pronunciation. So Keswick and Skipton are examples of this. In their Anglo-Saxon days, they would have been Cheswick and Shipton. And this shift could reflect a linguistic change that was occurring in the Danish-occupied regions. And that linguistic drift can tell us a great deal about what life was like for the general population. But to begin with, I might as well address a question that I've been getting a lot recently. Could the Anglo-Saxons and the Scandinavians understand each other? Are we basically just talking about thick accents? No. It's highly unlikely that Alfred and Guthrum would have been able to understand each other without learning each other's language or having a translator. Linguists have looked at the languages, and they've determined that they just have drifted too far by that point. However, the similarity in sound and syntax between their respective languages did mean that adopting individual words would have been relatively easy, because, with the exception of a few phonemes, most of the sounds were easily reproducible by both people across the language barrier. Now, the appearance and changing pronunciations for town names and the linguistic drift and issues of language has led some older scholars to conclude that there must have been a massive Scandinavian migration of largely a peasant class that displaced the local Anglo-Saxon population. Some of those same older scholars also took the now largely outdated perspective that unless the Scandinavians were in the majority, then there wouldn't have been this sort of change to the local language and pronunciation. This is very similar to the old perspective on the Anglo-Saxon migration, and how older scholarship believed that the move towards Old English was proof that there's a massive slaughter and replacement of the local population, whereas modern historians, with very few exceptions, don't hold to that perspective. Instead, the current view is that linguistic drift of the nature that was occurring in the so-called Dane law was reflective of likely two things. The status of the people who were speaking and the need to borrow words to explain things. So with that in mind, let's look at what we know about the state of language in the Scandinavian territories. When we look at inscriptions in the north and east of England during the period of occupation, we see that rather than Old English being replaced by Old Norse or some other language, the population is continuing to use Old English. And these aren't reverent inscriptions that might call back to older languages, sort of like how we sometimes use Latin, even though it's a dead language. Instead, these inscriptions were vernacular, which indicates that Old English was still commonly being used. Furthermore, when we look for similar runic scripts, or even vernacular inscriptions in Scandinavian languages, we don't see a corresponding wealth of material. That's critical, because what we don't see any evidence of is the Scandinavians continuing to use their own language and script in Dane law. Instead, they appear to have rapidly adopted the language spoken by the local population, Old English. Now, some Scandinavian words were added to the lexicon, husband, knife, window, that sort of thing. 
Thing, by the way, was also an adopted word. But by and large, Old English remained. The major change was just mostly the accent. And we see that in the change in town names, which is likely why Cheswick became Keswick. But the name changes aren't reflective of any sort of mass migration or displacement, as was previously believed. Now, the Hermiones of the group are probably urgently raising their hands right about now to point out that by the time that the Doomsday Book was written, about 40% of the people in Derbyshire had Scandinavian names, and a shocking 50% of the people in Cheshire and Nottinghamshire had Scandinavian names. And that is true. And we can thank our favorite bloodthirsty accountants, the Normans, for taking the time to do a census so that we can know that. But here's what their census didn't capture. It didn't capture why. You might remember from previous episodes that names often reflect fashion and power structures rather than a direct indication of lineage. Further, as we've discussed in the ethnicity episodes, people continually construct their ethnicity by discarding the parts that aren't necessarily desirable or cool or whatever. So the fact that we see a bunch of Scandinavian names over a century later doesn't mean that 40 to 50% of the people in the North were Scandinavian in the late 11th century. As Hadley points out, it's likely that this was largely just a reflection of class allegiance and style. So what does all this mean? Well, what we're seeing with place name evidence, as well as with the language drift and the eventual rise in popularity of Scandinavian names, isn't a story of displacement. Rather, it's a story of multifaceted settlement and integration. Sometimes land was taken through force. Other times, there was apparently unused or abandoned land that was being resettled. And still other times, there was land being purchased in one way or another. Furthermore, as we're going to discuss as we go on, this ability to be able to purchase land wasn't just for the Danes, nor was it bound by region. As we go forward, we're going to see records of Anglo-Saxon lords buying land within the Dane law. And I bet you didn't expect that. So what we're seeing is a new aristocracy moving in and integrating. And actually, in the case of some of the settlements near the Humber, we might also be seeing evidence of some corresponding folk migration that was taking place. And hopefully, the question that you're asking right now is how did they pull this off? But much of what we've been describing here requires a sort of normalization of relations. So how exactly did that happen? Well, it looks like this was accomplished through a great deal of political accommodation. Far from fighting the Danes, the local Anglo-Saxons, including figures within the church, were finding ways to work with them. And that's what we're going to talk about in the next episode. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter. We're at British Podcast. And you can find links to all our other communities by looking in the upper right-hand corner of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>